the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome again to the podcast. To the 20th episode, 20 Justin. episodes. Can you believe it? I can't really. It's kind of crazy to me. It's pretty cool. But um, I was feeling very celebratory. Mm-hmm. And so to celebrate, we were doing something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be our sequels that don't suck special. We, uh, we waited. We really thought long and hard about this one. So, and before we get into the movies... um. Uh, you know, we just want to kind of set up a standard here of what we, you know, we talked about with each other, like what we think makes a great sequel. Um, so I wanted to put that out there first so that you can kind of get an idea of like our barometer of how we're like rating these yeah, sequels. Yeah. And for me personally, I think first off, and I think this is sort of a traditional traditional thought, is that a sequel should be much bigger and more grandiose than the original. And I think generally because there's a success of one so the you know generally a lot of times movies especially if they're smaller and they have a sequel it's like the first one didn't have the budget you know they didn't get to do everything they had to yeah, do exactly it's gonna have a bigger budget in the second one or at least it should but i always to me i think the key is is like a bigger more grandiose version but not just doing the first movie over a bigger version which does work and it has worked with some movies but i think that's where a lot of sequels kind of fail. It's just like a bigger version of the first one. And sometimes the the subject matter that, that that's contained within it when you're trying to recreate the first one really is just like you look at it and you're like that's a flimsy version of the yeah. first re- and, movie. And so I like for me personally I don't I don't really want to retread. I want a bigger, more grandiose version but something yeah. that is uh, a continuation of a story or a continuation of characters or if you didn't get an arc from a character yeah. in the first movie than were given that arc in the second film. Yeah. Um, and so, and I'll just say like an example to me of a sequel that I don't think is a good sequel that I think is a what? bigger version of a retreaded story is Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh, To yeah. me, Beverly Hills Cop 1 is funny yeah, and just really like sort of raw and, and wild and... Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 is like a really expensive version of part one, except for it's like they it, just tried to go all action. and It's just not as yeah, good. Yeah, it's just not as good. Yeah. But there's nothing new. And so to me... Well, um, what about Caddyshack 2? Yeah. I mean, I yeah. know you're not a fan of Caddyshack, but man, Caddyshack yeah. 2. It's oh, bad. It's a bummer. Yeah, again, a, a continuation of a story. You know, I like it when sequels is a continuation of the characters' lives. Mm-hmm. But I also like it too when there's a continuation of a story or a new story is added that makes sense within that universe yes. that they've created for the characters. Yes. What about you? Um, I'm I'm not always with the like I want it to be like a bigger version of it because oftentimes when that bigger version happens, it's like like you were saying, like it's just not as good. Um, but I want continuation of the characters. I don't necessarily want the, sometimes this happens um, where the main character is replaced by someone that's supposed to, that's fitting that mold because 
you know, the actor didn't want to return for the sequel, something like that. I definitely don't want that. Unless we're talking about Sleepaway Camp, which is a whole other thing. I don't know. I, I want it to be a continuation of a story of the story. And I want it to be able to stand alone on its own. And yes, pull from the history of the first movie, but not necessarily. I want it to be able to exist on its own without its predecessor. I think that's a good way to gauge it. Yeah. You know, it makes sense to me. And so before we get into the movies that we are going to talk about, we try to omit certain movies. First off, kind of big movies that had been talked to to death. So even though I could talk all day about Star Wars, Indiana Jones, or Back to the Future, we've decided to omit those. Were, those. those were all my picks. Yeah. We should have talked about <laughs> yeah. this before. Oh, um, man. And also we omitted movie sequels that have already been, that come up on every best top 10 list of sequels. So it's like Godfather 2, Aliens, yeah. they've just been talked to. So we tried to go a little bit further out and try not to... I mean, some of these, all these... Because it's like, I we know Temple of, of Doom is good, you know? Yeah. So we wanted to shed some light on one, you know, maybe sequels that aren't mentioned or, or yeah. maybe ones, you know, some... Maybe people might think these aren't sequels that don't suck, but <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. So, yeah, there's that too. So uh, first up, uh, we're going to do Lethal Weapon 3, mm-hmm. which, you know, we both agree is the best, we feel is yeah. the best sequel not two, of not that four, franchise. Three. I think they're all good. Yeah. Um, I recently watched, they had they took them off Netflix now, but all four were on there, and I watched pretty much all of them back to back in a week, and I definitely think three is the best sequel of, of that bunch. Yeah, we'll we'll get further into it, but it, it's it's easily the one that I've watched or rewatched yeah. um, the most out of yeah. all of them. And uh, after Lethal Weapon 3, we're going to talk about Gremlins 2, which is one of the few movies that I feel is better than the original. Completely, 100% agree with you. That movie is just totally off the wall insane. <laughs> I just admire <laughs> its insanity. Yeah. So we'll get into that. After Lethal Weapon 3 and Gremlins 2, I brought up the idea to you about doing a Mad Max movie. I'll say Fury Road is probably my favorite out of all of them, but we're kind of keeping this pre-2000. Yeah, to the so sticking with our sticking, sticking with our... Um, and to me, it's different because it yeah. doesn't have Mel Gibson. And so yeah. when we were talking about Mad Max, my favorite is Road Warrior. And it turns out your favorite. Mine's Thunderdome. Thunderdome. Beyond, beyond Thunderdome. And uh, I don't have a problem with Thunderdome at all. But, and I don't have a problem with Road Warrior. So I think all. this will be a good discussion. So we'll kind of do our why we think. The gloves are off our, in yeah, this one. Why we think uh, ours is the best. And uh, and just so, so you, just so you know, we are dressed like we're in. Mad Max movies right now, so yeah. um, we're both in assless chaps, head to toe in leather. Yeah, I've I shaved my hair into a mohawk. Like we're we're really in really it. for this segment, you just got to figure out if you're Team Lindsay or Team Justin. Yeah, with your we're going into the movie. Thunderdome. Yeah, is what we're doing. Yeah, even though I think that that one's not the best sequel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So after our I'm gonna bring down. up that there's a gay character in Road Warrior. So yeah. Well, it's weird that you had to check with me if it was. <laughs> <laughs> I totally did. Yeah, Justin, that pretty sure it is. <laughs> that guy was gay, right? And then. So then we are still going to do our picks of the week, mm-hmm. um, but they will be sequel-ish. Um, and ish, I mean, because I'm doing The Color Money, which is technically a sequel to The Hustler, but it came out like, 
you know, 30 some odd years after the original movie, but it is a continuation of the character. I'll kind of get into the uh, technicalities in yeah. my pick of the week. And what was yours? My my pick of the week is kind of similar in a way, and it is Freeway 2, Confessions of a Trick Baby. And it is called Freeway 2, but in no way is it really um, connected to the first freeway. Other, than, I'll, I'll mention a little yeah. bit how it's connected What a later. subtitle. Confessions of a Trick Baby. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, we are st- you are still going to do a Murray moment for yes. this one, even yes. though we're doing a going off a little off the yeah beaten path. So yeah, we'll have uh, all sequel talk plus our Murray moments. And uh, so since we have so many movies that we're going to cover, kind of double the movies that normally do. Um, instead of clips, we're we're only going to have one discussion per film. So I'm going to just uh, outside of our picks of the week, I'm going to just do see if I can find the quick. 30 second or 45 second trailer spots for these and play them before our discussion. So we'll go to the worst. We're, we're going to kick it off with lethal weapon three. I'll go to the trailer spot and then we'll uh, get into that movie. Let's do it. The only thing they do contribute is mayhem and chaos. Observe. No, I'm chaos and he's mayhem. Mel Gibson. You're the right three men. Danny Glover. Joe Pesci. Hello, car 54, where are you? Lethal Weapon 3. You have the right to remain unconscious. Rated R. Anything you say ain't gonna be much. Starts Friday, May 15th at a theater near you. So, Lethal Weapon 3, um, like I said, I watched all four of these um, not too long ago when Netflix still had them. Yeah. And part three, man, it just... uh, I almost feel like it's like it's better than it has any right to be is like a, which is, a second sequel which is a really funny buddy cop series. Yeah. Um, but it to me, it hits on all the right notes for um, a good sequel. And don't get me wrong. I, I enjoy all four, of the, all four of the movies in the series. And I think that part two is a really good sequel. But to me. And I know I've said this before, no, my tonal no. shift problem with movies. Because it gets and really serious. It goes real dark yeah. toward the end. And to me, and the characters are still finding their footing with each other. Yeah. I think in the second one, they're almost locked in. But to me, Lethal Weapon 3, what I love about it the most is that Merton Riggs, Danny Glover, Mel Gibson really look like they're having so much fun. Yeah, I mean, you just see it on the screen. Uh, their chemistry, I think, is the best of all the movies that they've done. I think is just great, and I think that in the introduction of the Rene Russo character is like a great bonus. Yeah, exactly. And I think Lethal Weapon Four, if anything, it really plays off of the third one, and it continues the same the same feeling. And you know, we introduce Chris Rock in that too. Um, to me, I, I mean, I I love even the first Lethal Weapon. I like three better than I like the original. Um, I know that's a bold statement. That sorry. is that's for me, but sorry, Shane I can't Black. say the same. But sorry, Shane Black. Yeah. Um, but I really do love it, and maybe it is because of the addition of Renee Russo. But I feel like she adds so so much to this third one. The only thing that I would say 
where where three fails is you and I have discussed this that the the villain in three is is pretty weak. Um, he's pretty lackluster, but I but I'll take lackluster villain yeah, for a super fun sequel. Totally, like he 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 is just kind of a wiener. Um, you really hate him. He's a very he's very easily hateable, but he's just not like the Gary Busey of the first yeah. one, and even diplomatic immunity jerk face in and, the uh, in the second one. I think Jet Li rules. Yeah. In, and uh, Jet Li's awesome. Beat the weapon four. <laughs> yeah. So um, he's he's definitely like meh, the most wiener yeah. uh, of all the villains in Lethal Weapon Three. But I think this one is this one is the perfect mixture, I feel like, of of action and realness and there's a lot of humor in the third one. But the like the um dramatic aspect of it like there's a real dramatic story still, that yeah, happens in there's it. some realistic drama in yeah. Lethal Weapon 3 but I think what I like about the drama in Lethal Weapon 3 is that they use it for basically like it's roughly like the middle of the second act whereas yeah. in Lethal Weapon 2 they have drama in the final act of the movie and I think that that really to me it's good it's like Lethal Weapon 3, you, you put drama in there with Murtaugh because he shoots his son's, one of his son's friends who's in a gang because this guy has a gun and, you know, he... He doesn't know that it's the kid, but it's a shootout but, moment. You know, and it, it very, really messes with him. It rattles him to the core. And so we have a very dramatic scene where him and Riggs are on Murtaugh's boat, and but they get into a big fight, but then all of a sudden they're in the water and then they're... There's a humor, there's humor added to the end of that. And then from that point, we go back into action humor. And yeah. I think it's a really good transition. Whereas the other Lethal Weapons, there's like drama, you know, part one, there's drama with Riggs and you're, they're still introducing the characters. But I love where the placement of the drama is in Lethal Weapon 3. I think it's like really perfectly placed. I think too, the difference when we get to the third one is Riggs's character who started off in the beginning of these movies as kind of just like a kind of like lunatic a little bit and half suicidal his wife had died he's grieving over that he's still grieving over it in the second one even though he kind of begins to open up to a woman in that one and then she dies um and then by the third one it's the only one of the franchise that where his wife that died is not mentioned and not to say that it doesn't matter or something, but I feel like he's, we've already accepted who he is. And I feel like he's kind of moved past that and he's grown as a character and the character of Murtaugh um, has reached this point where he's been talking about the whole time of all of these movies before he's ready to retire and the third one, it's like, you know, he's he's really going to retire for sure this time. Yeah. For sure. And I, I think that's a good point about Riggs's character. Like there's he he's he's grown. Mm-hmm. And I think that even in the beginning in Lethal Weapon 3, we see that he's become family to Murtaugh. Like he's become a part of that family. Like everybody knows him. He hangs out over there. He shows up for breakfast. He's bringing it's, his laundry yeah, over. It's, it's a very you, you see how inundated he is with their family and I think that it really you immediately you get you see that they've become almost like brothers you know yeah above everything with the third one 
I feel like more more so than any of them. I mean, maybe not with the fourth one, but I feel like this is where we really feel like they are they're besties, man. They're they're in it to win it together and yeah, I just I I love that aspect. It's funny, but it's also the best odd couple. Yeah. I wanted to go that's a good comparison the odd couple. I yeah. I do. I, I <laughs> um so I want to want to go back to what you're talking about Rene Russo because I think with every sequel Usually they try to introduce a new character. Of course. And so with Lethal One Two we had the introduction of Leo Getz, Joe Pesci. Anything you want, Leo Getz. And I I, th- I think he's a great character. And <laughs> he is. I love that he continues on within the franchise. Yeah. He comes back and he's got a lot of good moments in part three. But I agree with you. I I love the introduction of Rene Russo. I love that we have a character who kind of matches Riggs beat for beat. Um and that you know, you get the sense that this is going to become a love story, but it's not so on the nose, yeah. like cliched. It very much so. It is not a cliche at all. And from from moment one, you can see where they're she's matching him completely. Anything he dishes out to her, she serves it right back to him. And it's not done in a way that's insulting to women. It's anything that's coming from Riggs is not like a sexist thing or anything to do with her being a woman. It has nothing to do with that. It's just like they are, they're equals. They're both cops. And actually in this, she's internal affairs. So she's kind of like a step above him. Yeah. Um, But in, in all of this from moment one throughout the rest of the movie, even after, you know, the, their uh, love interest, uh begins and even that after like there there's you know the moment when they like make out and like there's the insinuation of sex after that it's not like she turns like like a, yeah she like, still remains like this sort of tough character yeah it's really it's like Riggs is dating himself which is right. really cool because even after they've sort of like been quote-unquote dating yeah there's a moment where there's like two or three guys that, that there's a <laughs> confrontation they're about to scuffle with Rene Russo and, and Murtaugh is there and he's, you know, suggesting that him and Riggs should go help her out and Riggs stops him. And he's like, hold, hold on a second. So, no, 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 you he's gotta like, watch check, this. check this out. And then she just like whoops up on the <laughs> the guys because she knows martial arts. Yeah, it's like he he respects who she is. And it's also, he. it's not like she had to prove something to him. It was from moment one, she asserted herself and he he's always respected her and it's after he discovered what a badass she is that's when he's like oh man she's pretty great to me like has always been you know it's the first two movies have this very they're kind of like these macho dude kind of movie yeah in a way and i thought that it was a really great way to break from form and introduce like a, a a lead dominant female character that will match riggs you know, I really think that it was a, a great addition. And I think the way that it was introduced into the movie was like really great. It wasn't like, it didn't feel forced. No, definitely not forced. And it didn't feel like this is what we need to do to get another audience involved or anything like that. It just seemed, like you said, very natural. It was really cool. And Renee Russo is awesome. Yeah, I love Rene Russo. Yeah. Well, to close out uh, on Lethal Weapon 3 so we can keep moving on yeah. to... 
knock all these movies out. <laughs> I want to say, so each Lethal Weapon movie has a pretty interesting or I would say like exciting opening. But I think part, you know, part one, we have the woman who's on drugs falling, jumping out of the building. Part Oof. two, we have the chase. It opens on like a dramatic chasing on the highway, like just, yeah. It's kind of opens right in the middle of a chase scene, which is kind of wild. Part four, we have the guy who's got the flamethrower and he, <laughs> yeah. you know, and he's in the like crazy suit. Yeah. And I think all those are great openings, but I think part three to me, it plays to the characters the best. It, it, it's, it's the most signature opening, I think, of the whole series. And that's the Murtaugh saying we should wait for the bomb squad and Riggs is like, no, we can, they're, you going, know, we, they're going in to defuse a bomb. And uh, ultimately he, Riggs is like, yeah, we we just need to run, and the building blows up. There's a lot of back and forth. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 I know how to do this. Are you sure? Don't you think we should wait? But, no, no, no. But I think it's the best of like them playing off each other and where they're at, how the comfort, the risks that they're willing to take, and the comfort level that they have each other, and the trust that they have for each other. I think uh, just it all sums it up in that opening. I think it's yeah. such a great opening, and then we go into the uh, the flames continue on with the opening title sequence that say lethal weapon three yeah i just I really you know it's it's kind of cheesy but i just love it I, no, love, I love a good opening into i love a good opening and then going into the title yeah and that's exactly what this does yeah. over an eric clapton song it's pretty cool well um yeah again if you man if you haven't seen lethal weapon three in a while unfortunately it's not on netflix anymore but i mean you can pretty much find it anywhere if you're down with the vhs uh, you can pretty much find uh, <laughs> find it for a quarter at just about any Goodwill, you know. Man, I'll watch Lethal Weapon 3 anytime it's on TV, any single time. And I'm happy to say we're watching the Laserdisc right now. Yes, we yeah. are. <laughs> um, so we're going to move on to our second uh, movie in our sequels that don't suck special, and that is Gremlins 2, The New Batch. We told you the rules. Remember the first one? You can't get them wet. Don't let them uh, eat after midnight. What, what if they're eating in an airplane and they cross the time zone? I mean, it's always midnight somewhere. <laughs> you didn't listen. Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. <laughs> Gremlins 2, the new batch. Rockin' your way this summer. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, May 18th at a theater near you. So Gremlins 2, uh, we've got, first off, as I've said many times, Joe Dante being one of my favorite directors. Yes, he is. Uh, was director of Gremlins, was actually offered Gremlins 2 and turned it down because he just thought it was going to be kind of such a nightmare to do that, and he was already on to different things. Yeah. But then uh, they came back to him and offered him a bigger budget and final cut and he sort of took that as his opportunity to do whatever the heck he wanted weren't there like wacky ideas before he got involved like of being like gremlins on mars or yeah, gremlins go to like las vegas strange, or something yeah, yeah a bunch of strange scripts and and i do like that they took this movie this movie is taken outside of the town that yes gremlins and into like the city into this like sort of futuristic skyscraper slash office building slash it's, it's mall like, it's contemporary yeah. new york but it's set in this this building that's like high technology yeah. and yeah futuristic where it's like a, a whole little world inside a giant building yeah yeah I, I feel like joe dante and i in interviews and in the commentary i mean he basically said this was his way to 
make a movie that he normally wouldn't be able to make under a studio on this kind of budget. And since they were allowing him to do, and they basically begged him to come and do this movie, he took this opportunity to really just go bonkers with it. And bonkers he did go. I mean, <laughs> he this... sure did. The last 45 minutes of this movie, it's almost like what is there to talk about other than it is just pure... Insanity. Insanity. It's just so crazy. Um, But it's really fun. I mean, and I think that I like this more. We said we both like this more than the original Gremlins. And Gremlins, don't get me wrong, Gremlins has a little bit more of a story, I think. Yeah. With Gremlins 2, we know the rules. We know the setup. We still have this the same central characters. And what are the rules if, if for those of you who don't know? For those of you who don't know, you don't get them wet. You don't, don't let them, don't let, let them see sunlight because mm-hmm. it could, it could kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, but under no circumstances do you feed them after midnight. Yeah. And those rules, because maybe sunlight was number one. Now that I'm, there are a lot of instances, including with these rules that, uh, Joe Dante took the opportunity to kind of poke fun at, at the fact yeah. that people were like, what, these kind of like don't make any sense. What do you mean don't feed him after midnight? Yeah, I think they take the opportunity to poke fun at the original Gremlins multiple All times. All the time, yeah. yeah. This movie does to me like kind of what I said with sequels. It's a bigger, more extravagant version. Yes. It takes the Gremlins and adds this idea that they get mutated. They start drinking all these because uh, they're gizmos in like a lab in the beginning. There's like this like testing lab in the basement of this big building. And so they find gizmo and use them as a specimen. But then once the gremlins like he, happen, he, they start drinking all the different. Gizmo gets wet. Muta- then he, all these stuff. gremlins pop off of him. And then the gremlins are inside this testing lab where they have a, a, a potion that's the DNA extracted extracted from a spider or extracted from a super smart person or <laughs> vegetable. It just it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But the fact that you have a potion bottle that has like vegetable or brain or spider, yeah. you're like, I get it. <laughs> you have, yeah, and it allows for all these different uh, gremlin. Yeah. Uh, characters to to come out like the big spider gremlin, the gremlin who can talk, and he's like yeah super smart. So I I just love the 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 craziness. You know, a lot, again, a lot of it doesn't make any sense, but this is just supposed to be a fun. I mean, this is obviously a movie that is going for like full on craziness. Mm-hmm. It, it's not trying to adhere to any sort of serious plot. It's um, taking advantage of the fact that okay, you want me to do this sequel? I'm gonna I'm gonna be nuts. I'm going to be and totally nuts about it. I love the, I mean, I think they really amped up the animatronics, the mm-hmm. the special effects and the still hold up, man. They're pretty awesome. They did, uh, they did a cross between green screen and still real yeah. effects. And I was telling you this too before that if these gremlins were completely, well, they're not CGI, but if they were completely CGI, like a lot of things are nowadays, I would not care as much because I love that looking at them, they feel so tactile Yeah, because they are. And they're like, I, I feel like I know what a gremlin feels like. And I, I feel like uh, if this was CGI, I don't think you could get how real the slime looks on yeah. them. They all have this like sort of wet, <laughs> like gross. outer look that just, yeah, it's just, it looks like they were just like kind of hosed down with a water hose. It just, it's like kind of like this gross. Yeah. 
look. Yeah. Um, especially with the spider when he just has Man, like the it, even even Gizmo, he kind of has like a wetness to his does face. He? Yeah, he does. Like around oh, his he mouth, does. he kind of always has this sort of like wetness. But yeah, you're I right, think that's does. part of their makeup, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and I'll say this too. Man, Gizmo's cute. Oh, he's super cute. He's so cute. All all in all, it's just it's a fun movie. Great you know great uh action great score mm-hmm. one thing too with the uh plot i will say or at least the advancement of the characters and you would ag- agree with me on this that billy the main character he's way less whiny um i think that's my that- favorite part <laughs> that's my favorite thing about why i think gremlins 2 is a better movie because you don't want to punch him straight God, in the face he's i don't know if you've seen the original gremlins in a while but i mean billy is a pretty whiny little baby he's a baby and he's not a responsible pet owner yeah not a responsible no not at all at all yeah you just want to kind of smack him around so i feel like they're you know they took gremlins too is like let's give him a more mature yeah you know this guy's just not this sort of like he has a job now he's not this entitled a-hole yeah yeah phoebe cates returns as well they're uh engaged Uh, phoebe cates is still wonderful as always uh pretty much the same character as she was in in the first one she's working in the the same complex as as billy and uh character actor dick miller returns in this one for uh and i love dick miller's pretty much i mean he's been in every joe dante movie but i think this is probably one of the bigger roles he's been given in one of dante's movies which is makes me so happy because this was probably Joe Dante's biggest budgeted film, and sure. I love that he was able to. And what's give his him the what's his role. role in Gremlins? His role in Gremlins is he was a neighbor that kind of helped them fight them fight off. them off in the first one. So in the second one, he's on vacation. He's going to meet up with Billy's character, and then you know he's familiar with these, so right away he's like, "Oh, not again!" You know, and so he he he's immediately gun ho like into it, like yeah. we're going to get these things, and he, and he does have this like you know the old man who's like all about the u.s and all you know the, these sort of they this kind of character real character type guy yeah. um and dick miller is just uh, i just he has been in so many movies and even like uh, what was i watching like five or six months ago armed response from the 80s i don't know it's just it's kind of like a total b b movie action movie and dick miller's in the movie for like five minutes and when he pops on the screen you're just like this movie just got like 10 times better you know it's like he, he's like one of the best scenes in the movie and he's in it like i said for like five minutes but uh yeah he just has a just this like great way he just shines and everything he does like he, and, and joe dante i think knows dick miller's strength and he always like gets the best out of dick miller in all his movies that he uses him for that's awesome the there's another thing that I would want to say that I, I really love about this movie that, and this had to have been, this was obviously intentional, bringing, oh my God, Grandpa Munster um, into the mix as well. And this is referencing the Munsters, the TV show from the 60s, bringing Gram- Grandpa Munster in and bringing the original Gomez Adams from the Adams family in too. Yeah. Um, clearly a nod to these guys or just uh, clearly a nod or homage to original horror i don't want to say horror but i mean i guess it was like television type horror comedy horror yeah 
Um, but having Grandpa Munster not necessarily reprising his role as Grandpa Munster, but he is playing this television actor in the basement of this, you know, huge complex um, that also houses a TV studio. Yeah, a cable company. It's a cable company. It has a DNA lab upstairs. Yeah. It's got a, I don't know, coffee shop, Auntie Anne's down, whatever. So yeah, he has his own like horror... They show late night horror movies, yeah. you know, very much like Roddy McDowell Fright Night and He's, how you've this how they would do in USA Up All Night. I think they're sort of this is parodying that. It's like a satire and of didn't didn't he didn't Grandpa Munster God what's his name like uh, Robert Prosky I think didn't he have I thought he had a show I don't know if he had a show but I definitely felt they were parodying that maybe I'm wrong about cable. That. You know they would have all these shows on cable. Yeah, and th- th- this but is, is a, USA Up All Night. You're when totally this right. when this came out, I mean, I think now when you watch it, the the satire is going to be lost on anybody because there's like more channels than anybody could ever sift through. There's like 900 channels if you have <laughs> premium cable. But like when this movie came out, it was like when cable was really hitting its stride, and mm-hmm. when people were finally able to have like. 30 channels that were going 24 seven and they were having, you know, the, I, they, they'd be like, Oh, they even have a channel for cooking. You know what I mean? It was just <laughs> yeah, that, that exactly. this was like, I mean, now like there's like eight, you know, eight, like 80 cooking shows and this, three cooking channels. In but this, this, it's like, they're satirizing, like there's so many channels. They'd even have one for cooking. I mean, and this is like, that's why it's kind of lost now, but they were, I think sort of making fun of like, which the There's cooking- so many channels they have to create one where they show old horror movies and they have this guy dressed up as a Dracula, Dracula. and he's doing, you know, bits in between. And the the cooking station we should say is also microwaving with Marge. Yeah. So just yeah. to, but, <laughs> you know, where we are. But I feel like this was really like the satire of like cable. There's too much to watch. They'll make any kind of show for anything. You know, they'll they'll have a golf station. You know, it's just yes. very specialized. But anyway. Uh, along with, I just didn't want it to be lost. God, all I'm thinking is Sean Astin, but Sean Astin's dad that was Gomez Adams. And his name is lost in me right now. Gomez Adams. Oh, okay. Um, Gosh darn it. I can't it. think of his name. John Astin. Thank you. Yeah. Um... Yes, that he has a bit role in this for one second. He's the one that's responsible accidentally for getting um, Gizmo wet, thus creating yeah, all yeah. of all of these gremlins. There is a little tiny shout out. I know not a shout out, but like a tiny nudge to um, uh, one of the my, I think one of the scariest uh, Draculas aside from uh, Jerry Dandridge. No, he was really the sexiest. But the scariest Dracula to me was always Christopher Lee. Okay. And Christopher Lee is, he kind of is the head scientist in, yeah. the D, in the DNA lab. And um, there's one of the potions has a bat on it. You know, the uh, bat yeah. potion. Yeah. And they, one of the guys, the lab assistant says something like, I hear they suck blood. <laughs> something like that. And it's like, it had to have been some type of like. Yeah. Hey, Christopher Lee. Well, and that's what I love about Joe Dante. He's notori- a, a huge, huge film buff and film lover and notori- yeah. notoriously puts references to movies in his movies, uses directors, yeah. you know, always has like a handful of directors like play bit parts in his movies. And I just love all the, there's a lot of that in Gremlins too, where like 
they're doing references everything from Rambo to Wizard of Oz. Oh God, yeah, the Rambo. Yeah, there's yeah. there's man, I started making a list. I can't find it now, but so so much. I mean, there's like winks at so many movies. So many. And I don't know if you can possibly get any cuter than Gizmo um with a with a Rambo yeah. headband around him and he's like gearing up to be like Rambo is idol. Yeah. Ugh, That's awesome. Come on, Gizmo. We'll we'll keep on trucking <laughs> to our next movie, but Gremlins 2 the new batch. If you haven't seen it in a while, it's worth a revisit. Or if you've never seen it and you just thought, well, what is this? It's wacky. You know, it's it's so crazy. I mean, it it really needs to be seen to believed. It is just, it's just nonstop. I mean, it is just like, just a a meteor heading toward the (laughs) earth. (laughs) And it's, I I think... um, it's friendly for any type of audience. Like Lethal Weapon Three is maybe a little bit more mature. Gremlins Two is going to be friendly for just about anybody and totally entertaining for anyone. Yeah, so much fun. Yeah. In the future, cities will become deserts. Roads will become battlefields, and the hope of mankind appear as a stranger. If anyone's gonna get in there, it's gonna be you. The Road Warrior. Rated R. Starts Friday, May 21st, Vogue Hollywood, National Westwood, and theaters and drive-ins near you. Mel Gibson is Mad Max. They will worship him. Who do you think I am? She will challenge him. And I say that this man has broken the law. And this is his greatest adventure. Mel Gibson, Tina Turner, Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome. All right, so we'll go uh, go into our sequel SmackDown here. And that is uh, we we both... I, I love the whole Mad Max series. Yeah, me too. Um actually like I'll say like the first Mad Max is like my least favorite out of all of them. Yeah. And Fury Road being my favorite of uh the four movies that they put out. Even though I I think I don't I'm not really in I'm not really a huge Tom Hardy fan. I think Mel Gibson is a much better Mad Max, but Charlize Theron makes up all the difference in Fury Road. And I think who, that's who people think of when they think yeah, of Fury, and Fury Road. Yeah, Fury Road, I, Fury Road's probably like one of my favorite movies that's come out in the last 10 years. I just think that movie's amazing. But omitting that from this sequel because we're sticking to the trilogy uh, with Mel Gibson and your favorite sequel being... Mine's Beyond Thunderdome. And mine being The Road Warrior. And I, I will say this... I, so I watched these back to back when we first just said we were going to do this like SmackDown yeah, thing. Me too. And I remember not really liking Thunderdome that much. And I will say watching them back to back, it made me like Thunderdome more than I remembered. And I like that movie, but I didn't, I wasn't super into it. And I did enjoy it more when I watched them back to back to back. Um, but for me, you can see how that would be. I really Road Warrior to me kind of hits on all the things that I want in a sequel. It is a continuation of the story, a continuation of the character. But I feel like where the first movie didn't really 
they didn't have the budget to kind of show this post-apocalyptic yeah. world. And I, I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of the, the sort of dystopian, you know, burnt out future type movies. There's a lot of freedom uh, you can have with that sometimes. And I really think that Road Warrior did a good job of showing a small version of this universe where Mad Max, we kind of got a little bit of it, but I like that we push forward and show that it's even gotten more desperate times. Yes. And lawlessness is, is really overrun a large portion of the land in road warrior, though very small on story and plot. I like that it takes place in this like little bitty pocket of, of the world. And it has like a very, to me, like, and I'm, I'm a sucker for this sort of like, 80s punk rock on film vibe, you know, with the Mohawks and the, oh, it's the leather and the leather and the chains. And I, man, I just love that stuff. <laughs> I can't help it. It's just, it, you know, and, and I feel like Road Warriors just like that multiplied by like a hundred. So many assless chaps. So many of them. Yeah. And it's not that I don't enjoy Road Warrior. I love it. I think it's a great movie. But what I think about with when it when it comes to Thunderdome is what we talked about in the beginning of the podcast about what we like about sequels. I feel like Thunderdome is bigger, it's more expansive. Um I feel like even though, you know, we're obviously a few years beyond uh where where Mad Max left in Road Warrior that the the world has has developed that there's a civilization that has has started and this gritty disgusting kind of like underworld that is now the world of Mad Max I'm going to be way more a sucker for that than I am the uh desolate desert aspect that exists in Road Warrior where I totally like that <laughs> it's almost like it makes me feel a lot of anxiety to think about being hot and alone in a desert and lips chapped and bleeding and gross. And, uh, for some reason, the world of Barter Town I'm way more comfortable with than, than I am Road Warrior. I feel like the action sequences that exist in Thunderdome are more creative than they are in Road Warrior. However, I do feel like in Road Warrior they're much more aggressive and it's much more constant and it kind of hurts you on on another level there there are definitely some parts in road warrior like there's that unfortunate scene with a woman that's really uncomfortable um it feels like it's it's much more it affects you a little bit more and thunderdome feels like it is trying to appeal to a much more mass mass audience I feel like or like an, a younger audience is where I get. Yeah. And, mass audience, young yeah. audience. Yeah. And I, exactly. I and that's the thing, like I enjoy Thunderdome, but just kind of what you're saying there, like it to me, it did feel like it was going for a younger audience. And I will say, and I've said this before, <laughs> Thunderdome, know. Thunderdome to me is like the return of the Jedi of the Star Wars series. It has this big, exciting, entertaining opening and the rest of the movie can never compete can never really like 
do better than its first like 20 minutes. You mean after the introduction of the actual Thunderdome happens? Yeah. 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 And it's just like, and that's a thing is like, it's called beyond Thunderdome and I get it, but Thunderdome is the most exciting <laughs> part. So everything beyond that <laughs> is not as exciting. Um, well, and you would think that it would be, but to me, Thunderdome feels like two movies. It feels like what's happening at Barter Town and then the stuff with the Peter Pan kids in their section where they live in the two worlds meet in like return of the Jedi. Like I said, I feel like in the star Wars universe and then the Mad Max universe return of the Jedi, I think is a more entertaining film and it's definitely geared toward a younger audience and it's a much more pleasant watch, but it, it lacks the, the grittiness and the, I think the, the genesis of, of character that, that, empire and, and road warrior have but i will say i'll I like gi- empire I'll, the most I'll, i do too and i but i'll give thunderdome this i do feel like and this is why i think it's also more geared toward kids and it's toward the masses like you said is because it's the first mad max film where we get that mel gibson's character can be a little funny you know, they give him a little bit. He's not, I mean, and he hardly says anything in a road warrior. And so sure. parts of road warrior, they do. But I think that adds to the character of like the, his desperateness and his, he's alone in the world. He's just like a total vagabond. And I think not having him say that much, uh, works toward the movie, but I do like the character opens up and I will say there's more, I get more of like what he's about or where he's coming from in Thunderdome but I think as a whole, and how can you were saying with about the action sequences, mm-hmm. I I, I kind of disagree on the action sequences just because I feel like I think that I guess I don't disagree. I I I agree that they are more creative. I think the duel in Thunderdome is much more creative than anything that was in Road Warrior. But to me, the last twenty minutes of Road Warrior, last fifteen minutes, is probably like the most intense. It is. I'll give you sequence that. Sequence that, that was filmed in the 80s. Like, if you go back and watch that, it it really, I mean, and I mean, I'm talking compare it to the stunt sequences and Raiders of the Lost Ark or any of that stuff. Like, if, if you go back and watch that 15-minute sequence last. It's pretty intense. It, it's, it blows my mind. I mean, that that was like... <laughs> choreographed and like put together it just the editing and everything it just like it it really blows me away movies that come out now these like long huge action drawn out sequences they should sit down and pull up a chair and watch road warrior (laughs) take some notes and then go to the editing room after that yeah like i think a, a great blend of road warrior and and thunderdome like that would be a really cool movie to watch you know what though you know what road warrior doesn't have Tina Turner. So I can't argue with that. It doesn't have Tina Turner. It doesn't have a uh, two <laughs> Tina Turner songs in the soundtrack. So, and also I will say this about the music. Yeah. Cause I love the score that they have in road warrior. I think it's great. And they replaced the composer. And I think part of it had to do is cause they knew that they were going to use some pop songs with Tina Turner. Yeah. The only thing I love the Tina Turner stuff, but I'll say with Thunderdome, I don't like the replacement of the score. They kind of went more, you know, didgeridoos and like kind of more of a wow wow type score, yeah. which I thought didn't quite fit. But I knew that they're 
you know, it seemed like they were trying to go for something different because this was like a lighter tone, but we don't need another hero. It's just, I mean, that song freaking rules. And I do love how cold Tina Turner makes her villain. Man, she's I mean, so good. She's, she's, so she's good. incredible. I kind of like the look that Mel Gibson has going on in Beyond Thunderdome. With and the, I, and I with do the think long hair or the short hair? Long hair. Yeah, agreed. In the beginning. <laughs> and I also think, too, like a lot of the costuming and stuff like that, it looks like they had obviously had a much bigger bigger budget. All of the all the Mad Max movies, I love all the background production design yeah. costumes. I think it's probably like one of my favorite costume, quote unquote, type movies. It is really cool. It's, it's, yeah, visually, it's a very cool movie to watch. Even... Even in Thunderdome with, and I, and I agree with you that the weakest part of the movie is when, is when Mad Max gets banished um, out of Barter Town and he meets up with like the kids of Tomorrow Morrowland and uh, that is the weakest part of the movie. But even that setting is, looks really visually cool. I do think um, it just makes me feel way more comfortable the the world of Thunderdome than Road Warrior just because I think I'm just it, it makes me feel really alone. That's all. I won't lie. I mean, Road Warrior is a visceral watch. Yeah. And I think that's why watching them back to back beyond Thunderdome played better to me than it did when I watched Thunderdome as its own movie. Like not, yeah. you know, watching these back to back. Because Road Warrior can be an unpleasant watch at times. And I think that the lightness of Thunderdome was a nice yeah. uh, payoff. Brings after you like, back yeah, up a little brings bit. you back up. <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, and, and I think that was their goal. I mean, yeah. and goal, the you know, they, they reached their goal. I mean, I think it was a success. And the movie was a pretty big success, I think, out of the the three movies that was like the biggest hit and Thunderdome and yeah. Um, and, and it is a fun, man, it's a fun movie. I, I enjoy it. Um, but I, in my heart, if you know, I was put to write it down on paper, I'd write down road warriors, the better sequel, you know, the, not the main villain, not the humongous in road warrior, but his, his second, second down, the one that I just call the gay guy with the Mohawk. Yes. Um, he is venomous. Like as far as a villain, I would say he beats anybody that's in in Thunderdome. He and he, and he's also really fun to watch and yeah, very athletic and yeah, he he's a he's a real good villain, more so than anybody really in Thunderdome because we have Master Blaster which pretty quickly we get shut down is not really a villain. And then we have Tina Turner who looks really cool and she, she is biting, but um, she, she's really got nothing on that gay Mohawk guy in road warrior. Yeah. I think we have a difference of opinion, but I think I'm glad that we both agree that these were both good additions to the Mad Max series. Yeah. I think we can also agree that the best way to watch these movies is back to back. I agree. I feel in, you know, cause neither one of us don't like the other one. Right. In, and to me, the, I think road warrior and Thunderdome feel more cohesive together than Mad Max and war road warrior. 
Like, I think that there's like a stronger connection and I will say this, I mean, and why like Thunderdome saying it's like return of the Jedi, it has the better opening road warrior does have a opening. That's like a little stale and like the narration and kind of like we're catching you up on what happened in Mad Max, you know, whatever. But if, um, if if I can just impart the like little thing about the fact that the why origi- they did it yeah the original Mad Max was an Australian movie that Americans knew nothing about, and it did fairly well in Australia, and then they're like okay let's make it an American movie or let's it's gonna still be in Australia but like let's release it release it in America too. And they wanted to release it as Mad Max 2 and Americans would have been like, what's Mad Max 2? I never even saw the first one. So that's why it's Road Warrior slash Mad Max 2. And we do have that awkward kind of uh, intro. Yeah. uh, Of of Road Warrior. And they really stuck to their guns because, I mean, they continuously sell. I mean, my Blu-ray for Road Warrior says the Road Warrior on it. But, you know, they still stick with the title sequence. It's like Mad Max 2. (laughs) Right when. Yeah. I mean, there. It seems like there's a pretty equal. You do in any internet search, it's it's Mad Max Two: The Road Warrior, right. or one or the other. And uh, Mad Max Two is a terrible title. So <laughs> yeah, stick with the Road, Road Warrior. Warrior. Sounds pretty. Yeah. Pretty rad. Yeah, but it also can make yeah. you think that it's the first movie of the franchise yeah, too. So that, this is true. This is true. We don't want to uh, confuse any dumb Americans. <laughs> so luckily they. <laughs> There wasn't Google then. Come on. Right, yeah. What is this? What is this? Crap. That was my impersonation of... Dumb America? Dumb America watching it. What was this Mad Max 2? I ain't even seen the first one. I don't know why he's so mad. Probably because he doesn't live in the USA. All right, so... He got a... What kind of accent is that? Swedish? I don't like that. (laughs) All right. So that was our sequel SmackDown. Um, and uh, we'll move on to our picks of the week, um, which are both, like we said, sequel oriented. Um, I went for Martin Scorsese's 1986 The Color of Money, which was a sequel or a spiritual sequel, I guess you would say, to um, The Hustler from the 60s starring Paul Newman. I feel really bad and my mom will probably be disappointed in me. I didn't realize it was a sequel until you told me. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I don't really think that that, because there's so much time has passed in between. I think if you watch those back to back, you'd still, there's such a chunk of Paul Newman's, I'll get into it, but there's such a huge chunk of his life that's missing that, you know, you would almost need like a middle movie, like Color Money would have been the third part okay you know i mean we he's like a young man in anyway i'll get into it you want to tell me about it all right right i'll just i'll get right tell me about it right now so yeah there's like i said there's a huge span of time like 25 years between uh when the hustler happened and when color money happened so if you were really doing it in a sequel style you'd have like a middle movie um so the hustler came out in 1961 and Paul Newman's like this cocky young man who who basically is is a pool shark, and he goes up against Jackie Gleason's Minnesota Fats. And God, it is the Hustler is just an amazing movie. Both actors, Jackie Gleason and Paul Newman, at like the top of their game, uh, just fantastic. So 
if you right away if you've if you've seen the color money and you didn't know that it was a sequel it's okay because i think color money works totally you don't even have to see the hustler and color money works as a film but right away i just suggest going out checking out the hustler find it on amazon and watch it well color money takes place about 25 years after the events in the hustler uh paul newman is now an older man who no longer is playing pool he's a liquor salesman he's a very suave hustler type guy he still has his hustle on and tom cruise plays this young guy who's a really amazing at pool very cocky very much like tom tom cruise pretty much plays like the version that paul newman played in the hustler and so paul newman kind of sees himself in tom tom cruise as a young man and wants to take him out on the road to start hustling people um and then eventually play in like a real pool tournament now the now the difference in there's nine ball which is like a different a lot of luck can happen in nine ball and that's sort of the difference between these two movies where they're playing straight pool eight ball in uh the hustler and nine ball is a little different game but it became it was like really popular you know it's like a real popular game to play and it is a lot more fun because luck can happen i mean you can win on the break (laughs) um so tom cruise i'll say this i'm uh as crazy as Tom Cruise is, I've always loved Tom Cruise. I think Tom Cruise is a great actor. I think he does a lot of really lame movies, you know, and he has, but like, he's a f- phenomenal actor. And I, I agree think, with you on that. And I think that his, he probably has the best work ethic of any actor. He goes, and I mean, even with Color and Money, I mean, all the way back early in his career, he, he chose to go and pick big directors like worked with Ridley Scott, Martin Scorsese, Steven. I mean, you just look at his resume and she's like, this guy was like, I want to work with the best directors even early on in his career. But for color money, like all his movies, he got sat down and learned pool. And they had an actual professional pool player that was like the consultant on the film. And they said that there was Tom Cruise does all his pool, his, he, he, he did all his own shots in the movie, everything except for one trick shot is Tom Cruise in the movie and they said if they would have given him two more weeks he would have been able to do that and even the guy who's a pool consultant was like yeah Tom Cruise could have played professionally is like a professional pool player he just like immersed himself in it you know because he wanted to look realistic and that's one thing that's great and I had there was a period in my life where I was obsessed with color money and I played a lot of nine ball and I'm a terrible pool player but like I love I loved playing pool and like this is if you if you're if you're in the pool like color money is a great movie it's got a great soundtrack by robbie robertson and a bunch of like great bar type band music that you would that they play in the background um but it's it's a road movie in itself too and paul newman did win an oscar rightly so he's so freaking good in this movie it just it he's so suave he's so calm and collect but you do see his resentment toward Tom Cruise. They do have like this great character arc. They do have this great uh, moment, um, which I won't really spoil. I think it's a, a movie that you should check out. Uh, Martin Scorsese is one of my favorite directors. I think his direction in this movie is phenomenal. I think it's one of his most underrated movies. I mean, I, I put it up there with Goodfellas and Casino and Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. It's such a great ride. And so cinematic there's never a dull moment in the movie and i feel like it's a movie that has such energy and drive but at the same time it has its moments where it breathes and let you learn about the characters 
in these great little moments and uh, a great early awesome performance by a young Force Whitaker. So Color Money, uh, if you haven't seen it, um, if you haven't seen The Hustler, I think that would be a good double feature for anybody. It's been a really long time since I've seen The Hustler. Um, I need to revisit that as an adult because I know I saw it as, as, as a kid. I would completely agree with you. Um, Wait, but- so you've seen Color Money? or I've seen The Hustler. Okay. I've seen The Color of Money probably this... It's probably been since the late 80s. I know. What a jerk. Okay. Wow. What a jerk. But I, I remember scenes from this movie, but not enough to... Not enough to say how how I felt about it at the time. Um, I do know I pretty much saw all of Tom Cruise's movies around that time. And, yeah, the, the dude's a, a really good actor. The despite who he is as a person, like he's a really great actor and it doesn't surprise me at all. He immersed himself yeah. in this. Outs- Paul Newman's flawless. Outside of Magnolia, I think this is probably Tom Cruise's best performance. Um, and his performance in, though it's not a movie I enjoy born on the 4th of July. His performance oh, is sure. like in, insanely good, but this is, I think my favorite Tom Cruise character role. God, Magnolia. Well, he couldn't play that part any better. Yeah. That's what I'll say. So what was your your pick was <laughs> uh, Freeway to Confessions of a Trick Baby. This is true. And, uh, you know, I, I'd never seen Freeway 2. Had you seen the first Freeway? I had seen the first Freeway multiple times in college. Like, it was one that we we actually watched, like, quite me and my roommate watched quite a few times. Yeah. Uh, and I thought it was, like, a great little indie film. Yeah. And... I don't even know if I knew that the Freeway 2 existed. So I first discovered Freeway 2 Confessions of a Trick Baby when I worked at a video store. Uh, It came out in 1999, about the same time that But I'm a Cheerleader, or the same year within a couple months uh, that But I'm a Cheerleader came out. It was a year after Natasha Lyonne was in Slums of Beverly Hills. Um, and she's probably now most known from Orange is the New Black. So uh, Freeway 2, it, it shares very little in common with the first Freeway, uh, which starred Reese Witherspoon and Kiefer Sutherland, um, other than having some like nods to the previous film contained within it. Um, it. It does have the same writer-director, Matthew Bright, but that's pretty much it. I'm not certain that this movie was fully intended um, to be a sequel. Instead, it was more meant to be the second installment of a modern-day retelling of a Grimm's Fairy Tales trilogy, not necessarily a sequel to the Reese Witherspoon movie. Either way, Trick Baby is permanently in my vault of favorite films ever conceived. I know that might be hard for you, Justin, but... I don't know, man. It just is. I don't judge. (laughs) Before I go deeper on this movie, I assure you that this is an incredibly dark comedy, but it also has a very significant and heavy subject matter that's contained within it. Okay, let's get down to it. Natasha Lyonne plays a teenage bulimic white man-hating semi-sex worker, petty criminal named Crystal, or white girl. Um, as she's commonly referred to. She's sentenced to 25 years in prison, and this is where she meets and begrudgingly befriends a lesbian serial killer named Cyclona, played by Maria Celedonio. Celedonio, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. 
Um, but are you still with me? Lesbian serial killer, teenage bulimic. I'm on board. Semi-sex worker. Okay. Well, what I find most interesting about this film is that aside from so many shocking situations that occur within it, this entire movie's purpose is about trauma response or like its whole message is about trauma response and these girls being screwed over by the system. After White Girl and Cyclona escape from the pre-prison detention center, they go on the lam and of course are making a break for Mexico. Like, you know, everybody does when they break out of prison in the U.S. And they probably would have made it under the radar if Cyclona's oddly sexual desire to kill people wasn't so out of control. We learn about these two characters while they're on this road trip type of film, and they begin to uncover the reasons behind their problems. White Girl's intense bulimia is all throughout. It's very, very prominent. And I feel like this is center stage not to glorify the disorder, but more to show how much it can control someone. And I think that it's really meant to show how unattractive it is um, on top of, of showing how much it can control someone. The same can be said for Cyclona's desire to kill folks, too. Through almost every scene together, we learn more and more about their various traumatic life experiences, and we start putting the pieces together. One fact is certain, though, that these two girls never stood a chance in the world. I have to say that when we reach the end of the film and both girls figure out the root of their severe, severe emotional problems, it is awesomely liberating. And maybe that's just because I'm a woman, but it feels really liberating. It's not pretty, I'll say that, but it feels really good. Now, this is not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. It's also not a very easy watch. It's terribly unsettling, um, but it is a comedy um, about two girls getting back at the world. Trick Baby contains triggers of every kind. I've already mentioned uh, eating disorders, but it also uh, involves child molestation and various other aspects that one could certainly find unnerving. It's a movie that starts out shocking, which then becomes kind of the norm for the movie in general, so you're not completely surprised by what happens all throughout the film. That is, until the end, which is kind of an insane conclusion with a witch-like Vincent Gallo entering the picture um, and making this already shocking film even more jaw-dropping. I feel like Trick Baby is easy to bag on because it obviously didn't have the high budget or slick production quality of its predecessor. Every time I watch this movie, I'm constantly amazed at how far uh, Matthew Bright really took this film. And with each viewing, ever, ever since the first time in high school, I find myself rooting more and more for the, you know, nothing left to lose duo of White Girl and Cyclona, even though they aren't exactly pillars of the community. No one's perfect, but this movie, I don't know, this movie just friggin' rules to me. Um, it's not going to be for everyone, most certainly. I can't say that enough. But if you like films that you can't predict or homages to exploitation films, Freeway 2, Confessions of a Trick Baby may be right up your alley. I was curious watching it. The first thing that crossed my mind was if Patty Jenkins, director of Monster, had seen mm. Freeway 2. 
because there are and even though there's some parallels in the true story that happened in Monster, yeah. there's there's this there's this vibe going on that Man. I feel like Freeway Two You know uh, I that never Monster thought pulled, of that before. That Monster pulled from Freeway Two. Man, I never thought of that before, but uh, yeah. Huh. But that that was like going through my head when I was watching it. Uh, also just that this movie is it's it definitely didn't play to my sensibilities um and it's it, i won't call it it was kind of an unpleasant watch for me i can understand that i feel like if if tonal shifts aren't your thing this thing goes up and down like somebody having a real real bad emotional state like all throughout for an hour and a half it is up and down and you don't really know where to fall and you feel awkward laughing in some parts. Um, I don't know. I never get tired of this one, though. It, but it, yeah, it is not a, exactly a pleasant movie to watch. I was mainly excited to see Natasha Leone in, in a role that I hadn't seen before. And for me, just her performance and her being in it is enough, I, I think, to watch the movie. Um, but it is different. I mean, it is a... It is a pretty radical film, in I my think opinion. If if you like Natasha Leone, and if you like her performances in something like Orange Is the New Black, um, you could probably hang with this movie. I feel like, and and if you like her, then you should watch it. But it's it's not going to be necessarily pleasant. It's definitely, I would say, I would put it into that very small subgenre of like nihilist cinema. Yeah. She, I think, oh, I'm going to totally get this wrong. She was the either associate producer or something. She had more involvement with this movie okay. um, than just acting in it, too. And I, I know that she does have some love for this. At least I've seen on Instagram, like, a couple times, like, someone's posted a picture of this, and, like, she's responded well to it. So I think it's one of those movies that maybe meant a lot at the time, and definitely um, has never, you know, still gotten a lot of recognition except for people that are weirdos and are like. I think it's a nice bookend to your love of society. Be, uh, these being <laughs> up there with some of your favorite movies. Oh, man. Society. When's, when are we going to talk about that one? Yeah. One of these days. One of these days. Well, our picks of the week, Color of Money and Freeway 2. I don't think you could get. I don't think that we've had such a just. Oh yeah, total uh, like polar opposites but of what, like, movies for our picks of the week, and that's what's great. And the, what do they share in common? That being that one is like you don't realize that it's a sequel, and the other one is called a sequel, but it's totally not a and, sequel uh, to but the original. What they do have in common also is that they're up both road movies. Yeah, they are wild. Yeah, you know. So there you have it. Our picks of the week. This has been a fun episode. I'm glad that we, I like kind of going into these like uh, really short discussions on many movies. It's not something that I want to do very often, but it's a lot of work. I, think it, I, I really like how it's working for this episode. Yeah, me too. Um, so uh, without further ado, this is your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. When I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? 
Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so structured. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. So we already know that Billy wasn't the biggest fan of Ghostbusters 2. I personally still love it, even if it is slightly flawed. And we know that he did the Garfield sequel because it was going to be a moneymaker. Respect. I get that. So I thought instead of talking about a movie sequel he'd been involved with, I'd go for a recent cute reteaming of Billy and an old pal he's known for close to 50 years, piano man, comedian, all-around music man, SNL veteran, and right-hand man to David Letterman, Mr. Paul Schaefer. Now, Billy and Paul have been playing off of each other ever since the beginning of the Nick the Lounge Singer uh, SNL sketches. He was backing him up with comedy and piano accompaniment to the skeezy vocal stylings of Billy. And in the over 40 times in 33 years that Billy appeared on Letterman, Paul was there for those moments, adding his sidekick style of comedy, and periodically they'd even do a song together. This was such a common occurrence, I really encourage you to dive into a YouTube search hole uh, for hilarious renditions of songs maybe you didn't even know existed. And even after The Late Show with Letterman closed its curtains for good, Paul served as the musical director and again as Billy's right-hand man in A Very Merry Christmas that's on Netflix, of, of which I'm a big fan, of course. There's also a tiny part in 1988's Scrooge where Paul makes an appearance as a keyboard-playing street musician. It's a kind of blink-and-you-miss-it moment. And all of this brings me to the most recent mashup of these two, another sequel, if you will. Uh, to the musical partnership between Billy and Paul. In March of 2007, Paul and his band, the world's most dangerous band, released an album full of collaborations, and you bet our guy Billy was among them. The almost too cheerful and positive, pretty impossible to not love toe-tapper of a song was called Happy Street. I know it sounds cheeseball right off the bat, but Justin, is it okay if we give this a listen real quick? Absolutely. I'll cue it up right now for you. Hey, Bill. Bill. Hey, Bill Murray. Hey, wait up. Wait up. Let me catch up to you. Hey, Polly. Nice running into you out on the street. Last person I thought I'd ever run into. It's great to see you. Well, great to see you. How you doing? Right now, I'm just loving the way that I'm walking, baby. When life is feeling sweet, it has a certain beat. Everything's groovy when you're walking down Happy Street. Sometimes it might seem dark. The animated video for the song is pretty special because it's packed with little Easter eggs of Billy and Paul's careers. References to Letterman, Meatballs, Wes Anderson films, Scrooged, Stripes, Ghostbusters, and those are just the ones I can remember right now. It's also a pretty cute setup for Billy being a version of the Pied Piper and bringing out the townsfolk who are in need of a positive attitude adjustment. Throughout their long-standing partnership, I feel like this song shows these two dudes um, still have mad love for each other after all of these years. And even though Happy Street is 
overflowing with enough positivity that would make Frank Cross and Scrooge want to staple gun some antlers to a mouse's head. Even this cynical Sally right here can't help but love every second of this song. So I encourage you to go out and check out the video on YouTube. And I really think that if you love Billy, you kind of won't be able to stop smiling. Now, Justin, have you um, or did you hear this song before the podcast? I did not. I didn't. I was not aware of this. I knew, and I also, I I knew that Paul Schaefer and Bill Murray had uh, collaborated, but I didn't know that it was that extensive and had uh, stretched out over four decades. That's wild. Well, like the Nick the Lounge Singer act started at Second City. It didn't start at Saturday Night Live. So it was pretty much like right when Billy joined SNL and Paul Schaefer had backed him up ever since then. And he'd been on Letterman so many times and it wasn't every time but there were were numerous there were quite a few songs up until like even a couple years ago when when Letterman went off the air yeah I guess I just so strongly associate Paul Schaefer with David Letterman's show that I like forget that he had a long like a career before he was, he was totally a prominent part of of snl like yeah. it was even in sketches and background character yeah paul schaefer is is a pretty funny little dude yeah well thanks again for that uh just always coming in strong with these murray moments yeah trying so we hope you've enjoyed this uh, episode of our sequels that don't suck. That was a we, fun one. Yeah, it was fun, and I hope that these are sequels that you you don't think sucked. Yes. Um, and there's a <laughs> lot of other sequels that I would have loved to like squeeze yeah, in here, but we course. only have so much time. We didn't want it to be like a three hour podcast. Of course. Uh, so I just want to say this has been a uh, this is our last uh, episode for. 2018, and uh, it's been a great year. We've had uh, eight months of doing this and uh i've had a fantastic time i hope you've enjoyed listening to it i've Um, had an amazing time this is this has been great and uh i'm glad we ended on this episode where we got to kind of just like jam in like more movies to talk about (laughs) um yeah so we're gonna take a you know this is bi-weekly we're going to take a extra week off to sort of recharge um you know, there's just so much going on in the holidays and yeah. things that outside things we have to do work and everything else gets involved. Work. Uh, yeah. So cool. we're going to take a short hiatus, but not very long. We're only mm-hmm. going to take a week off. Just a week. Just a week. It's you know, fine. So you know, so it'll be a week longer than you normally <laughs> get to hear us if you're a religious listener. I don't know if we have any religious listener, listeners out there, but if we do... Uh, we will be back on January 15th and when we come back it's a little bit bittersweet Um, we are going to be doing a tribute to uh, someone that we both respect and admire a filmmaker actress that we love and that is Penny Marshall Um, we're gonna be doing a tribute episode that that's what we were going to start off 2019 with um and so but our our whole podcast will be penny marshall centric some history some career talk uh being a lover of film and actors and directors with each year you some of these legends are passing on and 
some affect me stronger than others uh, because I grew up, you know, I, I didn't know a world not knowing some of these people in my life. So even though I didn't know them personally, uh, but they were a big part of my yeah. growing up and a big part of my life, seeing them on the screen and seeing them on the small screen. So, man, I grew up on Laverne and Shirley and like the, uh, the L on Laverne shirt was like why I was real particular about how I wrote a cursive L growing yeah. up. Well, we'll anyway. uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we've only done one of the tribute episode and they're always kind of, they're always a little strange, um, but it'll be a celebration. You and I will take a little break and watch League of Their Own together, and it'll be it'll be a yeah. fun. It'll be a good time. It'll be a positive dog party. Fun dog, League of Their Own. Get the dogs together and watch a League Probably of Their Own. Probably some crying. Yeah. So. Um, that Madonna we'll be back. hits. You know I'm gonna cry. <laughs> uh, so we'll be back January fifteenth. Um, thank you so much uh, this whole year for your support for listening. Uh, your comments, your suggestions. Um, we can't thank you enough. This this whole thing has been a learning experience. Um, we hope that we're, you know we're getting our footing. We learn something with every episode. Um, but this has been nothing but a pure pleasure. So, Lindsay, thank you so much for all you've done this year. Thank you for um, letting me be writing. part of this, Justin. Um, I mean, this is a you know this is a team effort. Like it's, it's been. Yeah, but I feel pretty lucky to have been tapped for this conversation, Uh, so thank you. Just got lucky that I picked the perfect person. So Um, so all of you out there, whatever whatever it be, have a great holiday. Yes. And uh, we will... We'll see you in the new year. We'll see you in the new year, 2019. I think it's been a great year. I hope that, uh, you know, more... Uh, great movies to talk about um, as we grow and hopefully we keep you interested so thanks again so much for listening until next time we'll see you next year I'm Justin Johnson and I'm Lindsay Reber thanks so much thank you